0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm here today with Jeroen Koch, a senior lecturer in modern history at the University of Utrecht here in the beautiful Netherlands, to discuss his uh, new book, The House of Orange and War and Revolution, 1772 to 1890, out this year, 2022, in English with Reaction Books. Hello, Jeroen, and welcome to the podcast. Yes,
1: good morning. Hello, Jeroen.
0: It's so nice to talk to you. How are you this cloudy, cloudy morning?
1: Oh, this cloud. Well, I'm, I'm rather fine. But of course, beware, were uh, Happy to have all that sun in March, and now just April started. And it's only cloud and rain, but but this rain is good for the garden. So that's the way we look to it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's absolutely it. And March does what it wants, and April is exactly what we expected. Um, so that yeah, that's great. Um, you know, as we were discussing before we went live, there's a there's a lot of really wonderful things about living in this country. Our weather is not necessarily one of them. <laughs> so <No. laughs> um, eh, you take what you can get. All right. So, thank you for this book. It's a really enjoyable read. It's really, um, it's a, it's a, got a great narrative. It tells a story. It reminds me of the history books that I loved when I was younger, like long before I became an historian, when I just loved reading these great stories about the past. And these, like very, it was like an, it's an, a gripping adventure. So congratulations. Yeah,
1: many thanks for these compliments. Yes. Yeah,
0: I mean, and that's kind of, I, I think, the point of the book. We'll talk about that in a second. But... Um, So I'm trying to place this here in your kind of oeuvre and I'm looking at your CV and I see an ongoing interest kind of in high culture and power, right? I mean, you've written about the monarchs or the House of Orange uh, in many forms, but also Abraham Kuyper, who's a prime minister of the Netherlands in the early 20th century, on other dish historians, even if I'm not mistaken, Lionel Trilling.
1: Lionel Trilling, yes, yes. Oh. Lionel Trilling was my well, it was my my research master thesis, but it's but it also became uh, a little book. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, yeah.
0: So yeah. it seems, I mean, a historian of high culture and power yeah. is that a fair characterization?
1: I think a historian of high culture and power, that's true. But uh, if I would describe myself, I would say I'm mostly interested in, well, you could say, worldviews, which is very strong, of course, in the book like, uh, in the book on Lionel Trailing, but also very strong in the book on, on, on this Calvinist politician uh, politician and, and party leader and, and, and church founder, Abraham Kuiper. Uh, and uh, you have to uh, uh, think of it. I wrote on this neo-Calvinist uh, man, this, this, this inventor of neo-Calvinism, uh, from a Roman Catholic background. So that was quite an adventure. I never felt so Roman Catholic as when writing <laughs> on my Abraham Kuyper book. <laughs> Every <laughs> sentence I knew, I, this is a different world.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I think he's a different world for, uh, I think those neo-Calvinists <laughs> are a different world even for, you know, modern yeah. Dutch Reformed yeah. Christians. Right? Yeah, like, yeah,
1: yeah. And of course, I also wrote, and that was my PhD on, uh, on the German historian, uh, Golo Mann, the son of Thomas Mann, the famous German writer. And Golo Mann was one of those uh, historians, one of those intellectuals who went into exile uh, because of the advent of, of Hitler in Germany. Uh, so I did, I did a lot of things. Um, uh, And, well, I come from, indeed, the background of intellectual modern history, of modern intellectual history, Uh, Trilling, Goloman are uh, certainly examples of that. And after it, uh, after my book on Goloman was translated into German, I was asked by the head of my uh, section of cultural history, to write a book on Kuiper and a biography on Kuiper. And I first refused. I said, well, Dutch history, I've never done that. 19th century history, I've never done that. Um, I have no Protestant background and certainly not a Calvinistic background. So that's three times no. And then he said, well, that's why you should do it. Um, (laughs) And he sent me home and asked me uh, if I could decide before Christmas. It was just the start of December. So I took off some, uh, some small articles on, uh, on Kuiper and then I thought, well, he's quite interesting. I knew some things. I knew he was prime minister. I knew something about uh, uh, troubles in the Protestant church in the, in the Netherlands, but well, I could not explain what, what, what it was all about. Uh, but I said, well, it's, it's quite an adventure. And at first I should try to, to look within a year, if it was possible, <clears throat> to write a book on Kuiper in five years. So uh, well, that was possible, I thought, and then this book came about. And after it, so this was commissioned research. This was commissioned research by uh, it was commissioned by the Kuiper Foundation in the Netherlands. Went of course to his to the Kuiper University, the free university in Amsterdam, which was founded by Kuiper. But nobody wanted to write there a biography on Kuiper. Uh, so that's why they came to Utrecht. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, and then when it was finished in 2006, uh, I, I I asked uh, uh, um, the the person we have in Utrecht, that's Jos Dankers, he's called, who do all this commissioned research, uh, uh, mostly for for large companies or for um, for other organizations. Uh, well, could you do me another uh, commissioned research uh, uh, opdracht? I'm looking for opdracht. Yeah. And then we were already working to something, and then these three kings came rolling by. So because, and that was because of the fact, in 2013, it would be 200 years ago, that King William I, the one I wrote the biography of, uh, uh, came back to the Netherlands after 20 years uh, being driven away by the French revolutionaries uh, to, to become uh, the sovereign of an, the newly independent Dutch uh, state. Um, well, and then together with Dick van der mole and Jürgen van Zandt, who are also on the cover of the, the translation, we wrote this book uh, uh, together, of these books together. Um, we started on the, the project uh, uh, of the three uh, biographies of the kings so we had uh, funding um, um, around 2008 2009 of the, the, the Prince Bernard uh, Foundation in Amsterdam it's a cultural uh, uh, foundation for cultural uh, things for music and theatre but also for this kind of things uh, and there was this hard deadline because we have to finish it in 2013 and then we had these three biographies of the kings. Um, yeah. And and we took it to Amsterdam, to the new church on the dam, where just half a year before, our current king, Willem-Alexander, uh, was inaugurated. And we gave the first edition, the first books to uh, our current king. <laughs> <laughs>
0: what a moment, right?
1: Well, it was really a moment? It was really a moment. It was so funny. Uh, it was funny to work together <clears throat> uh, with, with two others, which is quite different because most of the time writing as an historian is a very lonely business, and here we were with three, uh, and we had a, a, a our day within the conical uh, of in, in the Royal House Archives in uh, in the Hague. So every Tuesday, we uh, we were there. Uh, so they were, we had a, the, the study room for our own. So, well, I think we, all, we made all the jokes possible about the kings <laughs> in that room. <laughs> and, and, and it's quite near to the palace, to the working palace of, uh, of the current king. Uh, uh, and, uh, of course, uh, well, we finished it. And one of the very nice things was that we all... Uh, could project one sentence of our kings uh, before our current king. I, I say our kings, but our kings are these three 19th century Williams. Um, so I uh, took a quote of William the I um, at the moment when he decided to step down as a king 1840 just just a few months before when he said to one of his his, his, his one of his Um, Vertrouwelingen, one of his confidants, he said Monsieur Je suis né républicain, Mr. I was born a republican and of course he should become, he should have become statholder in the republic, so before our king there was this sentence Mr. I was born as a republican, (laughs) which is his great 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 grandfather or something like that, yeah and, and Jeroen van Zanté, who wrote uh, uh, the, the book on William II, William II, uh, who is our Dutch hero of Waterloo, because he was wounded as, as, as uh, adjutant of Wellington. He was one of the adjutants of Wellington also in the, uh, in the um, uh, um, uh, Iberian um, uh, campaign against Napoleon, against the, the Peninsular Wars. uh, And he had also a quote for William II from 1840 when he just had become king (laughs) after his father uh, decided to step down. Uh, And he had uh, his complaint well, well, um, um, a a slave at the gallows, uh, Galeian, rowing rowing, slave, has more freedom than a king because he at least is in the open air. And I'm sitting at my desk, <laughs> writing, <laughs> having to sign all kinds of laws. I do not make myself. <laughs> but, uh, so that was also projected uh, before, <laughs> before um, our current yeah. gig. I'm sure
0: and then, love that. Love that.
1: Yeah. yeah, and then Dick <laughs> van der Meulen still had to start. So he was the last, of course. He's always the last. I always was the first. Um, and uh, He also uh, had a small sentence of William III um, um, uh, supposed to be his famous last words in uh, 1890. Uh, uh, You have to to imagine the situation. He is already sick for weeks and he's lying there in his palace in Apeldoorn at the Low Palace. Um, And there is this one uh, man who is taking care for him. And a few days before he dies, he he becomes awake in the middle of the night and he's... He, he, he comes out of his bed, is standing. It was a tall, rather fat man, William III, a large man. Um, and uh, uh, so his, his, his chamberlain says, You should not do that, you should not do that. Uh, please, uh, sire, you are very sick, you should lie down. And then the king says, Or he is supposed to have said, Well, well, who governs here? Who is reigning here? You army uh, so that's that's his famous last words which in a way um, um, uh, summarizes the problem of this last king who was put into the cage of the modern constitution uh, from the very date he became king and then what what's interesting is the answer of the chamberlain not only he said you should lie down but also Um, who is reigning here, you or me? Yes, yes, your chamberlain knows the king is reigning. The king is ruling the country. But um, uh, the chamberlain also knows a king should not fall down. So you should lay down on your bed. And this other problem was that just this king, we know him as King Gorilla in the Netherlands, (laughs) because of his erratic behavior, This king, uh, well, stumbled through his life, uh, but there was this whole entourage keeping the king.
0: Keeping him (laughs)
1: upright,
0: metaphorically (laughs) and literally, one imagines. By the way,
1: this third king and the second king were this morning in the papers because there was a book published yesterday. which is about a rumor that was spread um, uh, just a year, a few years before his death, that King William III... Uh, would have killed his father, King William II, to become king. I mean, this is a rumor that is spread by socialists in the famous pamphlet on King Gorilla, indeed. <laughs> uh, yes, this was a pamphlet that was issued uh, for his seventh birthday, 17th <laughs> Sevent, seven, uh, birthday, 17th birthday in 1887, when he became 70, yes. Um, uh, and there is this book on. Uh, uh, nowadays, this book on this well a uh, murder uh, on William II by William III. And in the papers, indeed, Jeroen van Zanten and Dick van der Meulen explain, well, this is a rumor and it's not true and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So. Okay, there's there's a lot here I want to unpack for a global audience, right? And um, this we have a global audience, but a lot of Americans and a lot of other historians listen to this. And from the beginning, the idea that this book is commissioned, um, that the king is going to read it, and that you also expect other people to read it is going to sound very odd to an American academic or even, I think, like, most historians you know and i think um most academic historians write books for other historians and they're very small and they're very like this huge apparatus right this book is not necessarily for other historians from its conception right who is this book for and who were you writing for when you did it did you expect that willem alexander would have would have your books
1: uh, oh yeah no 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 that, that was a surprise because the book was when the book was commissioned his mother still was our queen uh, so it's from Queen Beatrix that we uh, got permission to enter the, the the archives, which are which are family archives. So you 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 need to have permission uh, from uh, uh, the king or the queen uh, him or herself. Uh, um, and from the beginning, um, indeed, we were writing for a large public, but uh, with the knowledge that the last complete biographies of William I and William II, on William Third, there was hardly any real scientific work, um, uh, were already almost a century old. And of course we use these books uh, and they are very uh, fruitful to use because there's a lot of material uh, there uh, for William II and uh, William I. Uh, but... Uh, the publisher who was also uh, from the start uh, in the whole uh, research said: no, we are writing for a large public. Yes, on a level that's also interesting for uh, uh, academics, for, for the historical science. Uh, But one of the things, for instance, is that while these kings, uh, most of the time, were writing to each other in French, because French was the international language, our publisher, of course, said, you all have to translate that French into Dutch, which is not the normal practice. I know in England and in the English-speaking world, everything is translated into English. Most of the times, but we uh, for for English, German, French, recite that in the original language, and even uh, my medieval colleagues do that with Latin. Uh, um, uh, so uh, we had to translate it because it is for the large public. Well, is this this is not anymore, I should say, common practice uh, at the universities. Indeed, what you say, uh, we are um, most of the time writing. Op- most of the time, we should write articles uh, which are published in scientific uh, um, series, uh, which are uh, um, quite often papers from uh, a congress uh, or, or uh, papers you worked on uh, for an article. Uh, so this is this this is this um, model. Uh, the humanities has, has taken over from the sciences, from, from, from physics, etc. Because there, after three sentences, you and me can hardly understand what they're yeah. talking about.
0: If, if I cared, I wouldn't be able yeah, to. Yeah, But I, I there, don't. it I has a function. Yeah. Because
1: we get better medicine, or we get better uh, bridges, or better cars, or whatever,
0: whatever it is they're building, and whatever.
1: Ahead, uh, so they can they can understand each other, and that's where these congresses and what these papers are for. If we only would write for one another as historians, it could be very interesting. But then, well, it becomes uh, something very inwardly turned. If we do not from time to time, or all the time, try to get our insights beyond the front line, beyond the spotlight, to our uh, public, to public that's generally interested in history, uh, then I think we are doing something wrong. And um, I come from, uh, I'm I'm already uh, almost uh, 40 years I'm teaching history here in, uh, in, 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 in Utrecht. Uh, so it's only three years that I'm 40 years teaching history here. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I come from a, a section uh, on contemporary hist- history. And there it was more important to write a commentary in a paper on, well, say, something, uh, some, some actual actual problem and give the historical background. Uh, for instance, the, the today war uh, in Ukraine, uh, than uh, to have another article for a specialist journey or uh, a journal or whatever. Uh, so you could better uh, try to write for the general public. And I'm very glad that this commissioned research gave me the opportunity to do that.
0: <laughs> well, it's wonderful. And I, um, I mean, I think this is this way we've made ourselves irrelevant. We only talk to each other in these about these little moments, you know, a single day of a great battle or something. And that's fascinating. And I love to do that. And I love my research. But we exist. The humanities exist. to to, We're we're meant in the university to make people better thinkers, broader. Here's how you become a, a better citizen. And we've, if we don't ever do that, what's the point?
1: What's the point? So my, um, yeah, you call it in German. You call it Dr. Vater. my, 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 my supervisor for my uh, PhD, uh, Hermann von der Dunck. Uh He came from Germany in the in the in the thirties with his with his parents. Uh, so he fled also for the, the Hitler um, regime, and he was. So much in the newspapers and so much on television or or radio as a commentator. Uh, And the one I wrote about, Golo Mann, my PhD, this this exiled German historian, he came back after having been in France and the United States in the 50s to Germany. Um, And I did not only his historical work on 20th century Germany, but also his, you could say, journalistic or comments uh, on actual German politics from, say, the start of the 1950s, and he was almost every week, sometimes a few times a week, in the large German newspapers as a giving comments on the actual than uh, West German uh, political situation, and sometimes even advising the German chancellor. So that was his role as an historian, which was, of course, reinforced by the fact that he had fled from Germany and had come back and tried to educate uh, the Germans, to educate them to, well, to democratic citizens. And he had seen the examples, of course, in the in, in United States. So this is well in, in that way uh, I um, have have followed a different path from my uh, from my from my fellow historians uh, uh, mm-hmm. here in Utrecht in a way yeah,
0: yeah. in yeah. a way um, but this is also a very serious work and we've been talking a lot about the three monarchs books but I want to talk as well about um, uh, you know the House of Wood uh, you know, uh, the uh, the House of Orange and War and Revolution. Um, which explores the House of Orange-Nassau, like how and how the House negotiated this really tumultuous time. And so it's, um, I mean, this is, it's a work for historians, but it's got this great narrative, right? So it's a, it's an important historical work as well, covering this really... Uh, really tumultuous time. So how did the House of Orange manage to to remain? I mean, that's impressive, right? You're speaking to the descendants of these people.
1: Yeah. Um, Uh, How did the
0: House of Orange make this leap? How
1: did they manage? They managed with a lot of luck, I would say. (laughs) That's I think the shortest answer possible. Uh, They managed with a lot, really a lot of luck. So this book starts uh, at the end of the 18th century uh, when the Netherlands still were this republic Of seven sovereign provinces uh, working together but also working against each other, uh, where this Orange family uh, uh, were stadholders, where stadholders, so they were servants, officially they were servants of the several provinces, just not of the Republic as one, but of the several. Provinces, they were servants, and their task was to lead the army and to lead the the admiralty. So they were the highest military commanders on land and at sea. Um, that was their function. Uh, and the other uh, strong figure in the republic was the um, uh, great pen, the grand pensionary. Uh, and the grand pensionary was a was a a, function, uh, 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 a man. It was a man all the time, indeed, uh, who uh, did the uh, external relations of this group of seven sovereign provinces together. So he did the external relations of the Republic. So, uh, and their position uh, uh, was, there was a lot of struggle around their position, but uh, the, the Orange family had managed to make the steatholdership Uh, hereditary. So they were sure they would become Stadtholder as soon as their father uh, uh, died or said, well, I don't do this any longer. Now, the problem is that uh, William I and William II, II also still born in the Republic um, uh, uh, just before uh, the French revolutionaries invaded it, uh, that, that William I and William II, as as young men, uh, get confronted with this new revolutionary um, um, uh, people. So um, uh, there are three revolutions that are important at the start of this book. That is first the American Revolution, that's the Dutch Patriot Revolution, which was which was modeled on this American uh, Revolution, and that's, of course, the French Revolution, the large revolution. Now, this revolutionary movement uh, says, well, we will send away the tyrants, and the father of William I is seen as one of those tyrants, and indeed, not exactly in uh, um, 1789, but yes, in uh, 1795, uh, the French revolutionaries assisted with this Dutch revolutionaries, those patriots invade the Republic and they drive away the Stadtholdrian family, the Orange family. The Orange family goes into exile and they go of course to the families where they were married with which are in this period the British royal family and the Prussian royal family that are the main and the most important contacts for this Stadtholdrian family for this House of Orange Then the history of the Netherlands is so complicated. It's one regime after another until uh, uh, around 1806 first. And then then we have had the French revolutionaries, we have had Robespierre, we have the coup by Napoleon. uh, And then Napoleon in 1806 makes his brother Louis-Napoleon, King of Holland. He calls it Holland, King of Holland. Only for a few years. And then the whole of Holland becomes incorporated into the French Empire of Napoleon. Now, you could say there, had history uh, uh, run different, could the, the Dutch state simply have ended? It could have ended there. Was that the case? Then the House of Orange, as Dutch uh, a royal family or as Dutch Stadtholdingen family, simply had not returned. They had not returned. But as a, well, a kind of uh, uh, look between all this chaos, at the end of the period, so after Napoleon is defeated uh, in Russia and comes back, then the British become interested in the house of orange again so at first they try to 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 protect them but then well they know well this house of orange what should we do with it and you see that this later king william the first is wandering around europe everywhere sometimes he is uh trying to uh, to to be a, a general for instance in the austrian army or in the prussian army but well it's all to no avail um uh, but then after Napoleon uh, is, is, is defeat, defeated and, and this defeat is, is near, then the British again become very interested in uh, the House of Orange and he becomes a pawn for them in this whole play that already, that, that, that in the end um, uh, re- reaches re- will lead to the Vienna Congress. And the, the Vienna Congress, there they rearrange uh, Europe uh, to officially the principle of the monarchy. So that's what it's called, the monarchical, the monarchical principle. Uh, so they get monarchs everywhere. And at the same time, it's um, uh, a great power politics. And within this great power politics, which is Russia, Austria, Prussia, France, again, and uh, England, the, the Netherlands, uh, uh, and then all of the Netherlands, so today's the Netherlands and Belgium, uh, is part of the British sphere of influence. It's the British sphere of influence, and uh, so they can decide how it is ruled. Of course, they have to 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 agree with the other big powers. So that's why they are going to Vienna, of course. And there, in this constellation, um, uh, William the First become in 19 in 1815 king of the Netherlands and Belgium the united kingdom of the Netherlands and they also get luxembourg so today's benelux in a way was the kingdom of william i now this is one of the things now to to it's only the first part of how how very complicated this was now there is a, another line so you could say that after they were uh, driven away from uh, the old republic, the Orange family uh, were looking for a new role for their dynasty. Now, I uh, tried to define dynastical politics, and dynastical politics you can do three things you can govern somewhere, but well, governing somewhere was over. You can fight their military role. Uh, now, William I was not a real military William II was, but William I was not. Uh, but you can do your military role, and you can try to uh, arrange a, a marriage a marriage somewhere. Now, there's a moment where this... It's, it's all very complicated, where this William I, or the later William I... Uh, has ruled on some small uh, has been ruler of some small German principalities under the under the of uh, Napoleon, but then he he opts against Napoleon and Napoleon says well away with you, and then the only thing he can do is trying to get his son William II into a good marriage. And that's around 1807. And then his sister, Sister Louise, Princess Louise, says, what can we do now? We have nothing left. What can we do now? We should try to marry your son, the later William II, to Princess Charlotte, the heir to the throne of England. So we will have a, re, uh, a repeat of William and Mary, the Glorious Revolution, 1688. <laughs> uh, again, and that's, the, that's also the words they use. Again, the Glorious Revolution, again, William and Mary. Now, William II, from Berlin, where he has been trained uh, as a military, uh, by the way, uh, under the under the leadership of Clausewitz, so he was trained by Clausewitz, the, the the famous Prussian general, famous Prussian general, is sent over Sweden to England with an accident, uh, and there he should become visible for the British royal family, for the um, the House of the uh, House of Hanover, if I'm right, yeah, the Hanover. It's, it's so much um, for Princess Charlotte and his and her parents. So he goes to Oxford to study, and then he has to join the military, and he becomes an adjutant of Wellington, and a very good adjutant of Wellington. He is very, very, very brave. Uh, this William uh, II. So he goes to Portugal and to Spain, and he fights at Baragas and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, in this terrible, terrible Spanish uh, war against uh, Napoleon. It's a terrible war. Uh, and indeed, he comes into the picture of Princess Charlotte. And then at the end of the period, 1811, 1812, 1813, indeed, it comes to uh, a relationship between Charlotte and uh, William II. So it's already announced <laughs> in the Netherlands, they will marry uh, by his father uh, as he has become King of the netherlands so um, it's very complicated but this this uh, way to do uh, uh, matrimonial politics from the dynasty almost uh, succeeded and then we would have had another william and mary relationship between william and charlotte now the complication of course is that uh, it would be a marriage between two heirs of two sovereign states a king and a queen which is impossible, but Charlotte is also impossible. Charlotte's parents, George III and, and and his mother, are even more impossible. It's it's so totally impossible. So the the how you call it, verloving, the the so not the marriage, but before the the engagement. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the engagement uh, is 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 well is is <laughs> put down. So it cannot go on. It's broken, yeah, it's broken. Yeah, and then and then you could say, if, if I follow the marriage of uh, William II now, uh, um, um, William II, again, is this adjutant uh, of Wellington, now in the Battle of Katerbra and the Battle of Waterloo. So, yeah, he is our Dutch hero of Waterloo. He gets wounded uh, at the Battle of Waterloo. He is also in the huge picture of Wellington, uh, at, the, at the battle scene of Waterloo, they issue Wellington on his horse and then uh, on the left side you see King, King William II or the later King William II the Prince of Orange uh, by then uh, wounded uh, uh, well he's a real hero in the Netherlands, he is our hero of Waterloo, so whoever Wellington is in the Netherlands, King William II is our hero of Waterloo <laughs> it's very nice to, 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 to say that somewhere in England, I did that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and after it, uh, after Waterloo, it's the Tsar, Tsar Alexander, who offers almost his one unmarried uh, sister to this uh, Prince of Orange. And that's Anna Paulona. Uh, 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 from from the, the Russian uh um, royal house. So instead of marrying British, William II marries Russian uh, with Anna palona And and uh, well Anna Polona uh from the start uh to her death uh has uh, William II has been her hero, which is also I, 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 I used to say that that's also a good base for marriage. Uh, but well, you could <laughs> you could have your questions, but well, yeah. And and this is here very um, um, uh, exciting because what we know of William II. William II is. We were very jealous. So Dick van der Meulen, who wrote William the and I, who wrote William the First, were very jealous on Jeroen van Zanten because he had William the and William the Second. There should be made a Netflix series around him, and I already already, already uh, um, uh, uh, um, suggested to make a, a series uh, on William the because William the Second not only is this military hero, and not only he has this his strange engagement with Charlotte and then his marriage with his Russians, uh, with his Russian uh, princess, but he was also bisexual. So he, he 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 had leanings for women, but also leanings for men. Uh, 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 so, he, so the problem is that uh, his father had to pay from the palace a lot of hush money because it was known, it was known. So they were blackmailed time and again. Uh, 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 William II is really an adventurer. So, at a certain moment, he comes into contact with frustrated French Republicans and uh, he becomes their head, or he says, Well, I will lead you in trying to topple the reinstated Bourbon King William XVIII. So, he, he almost <laughs> goes into, <laughs> into revolution again. <laughs> and there, Wellington's. Wellington is very critical on his former adjutant, but it's well, it's it's such an adventurer. He is really an adventurer, William II. Yeah, so so it should be the Netflix series, and it should be taken on on location from Spain to Portugal to to England to. Russia to Russia. Uh, He's even been in Morocco. (laughs) Uh, Yes, yes. Uh, 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 And you would get a really European production. And and I think that's one of the interesting also of the books. I um, uh, have tried to show, we have tried to show, uh, that this, this history of the House of Orange is not only a Dutch history, it's very much a European history. It's a European history because of all these connections of the dynasty with all the royal houses, but also of the European politics. Certainly, of course, during the the, the French Revolution and Napoleonic uh, period, but also later. Uh, They they are um, uh, very much subject of big power politics. So now this William II. If I go on and try to finish this this really ridiculous story at some points, this this almost unimaginable story. uh, uh, This this William II at the end of his life um, uh, accepts our Dutch modern constitution. Our Dutch modern constitution which says the king is inviolable, the ministers, our ministers and our parliament. It's our ministers is responsible. That is the, that's the sentence. The, the king is inviolable. The ministers, ministers are responsible. But then ministers and parliament become uh, the focus of the real politics in the Netherlands. So that's also part of King William II's legacy. And then after he has this new constitution, he dies. He dies quite young from a heart attack. Um, and then William III comes. Our King Gorilla. Uh, they have all nicknames. So William I is our King Tradesman, so because he is the one who tried to modernize the Netherlands as soon as he ruled. King William II is our uh, hero of Waterloo. And King William III is nicknamed by the socialists of his time as King Gorilla. <laughs> and King Gorilla is, in a way, a caged king. He is caged, of course, as this gorilla, but he's also caged within this constitution. And you get this struggle with Parliament time and again. And King William III really is very, very, very frustrated. Not only because he has no power, but also because of his, well, of the terrible relationship with his first wife, Queen Sophie. Queen Sophie is, is, well, she's a villainous woman. I would say. So she writes a lot of letters uh, and she, she speaks a lot of languages, but she do not speak Dutch. She did not speak Dutch, but she knows Italian and French and, and Russian and German and etc. and English. Uh, but every third uh, sentence of her is, well... It, it's, it's some villainous remark on this or that, or on somebody, most on somebody, and most of the time uh, on her, and her husband. Uh, in a way, you could say all these kings had a larger opponent, opponent who was larger than themselves, who was who was stronger than themselves. And for King William the third, uh, or for King William the, the First, this is Napoleon. For King William II. This is his father, William I. And for King William III, you have two candidates. One is his wife, Sophie, and the other is the politician of the new constitution, uh, Torbecke. So that's our liberal leader in the 19th century. I think it's the well, generally uh, he is seen as our most important 19th century prime minister, maybe the most important prime minister uh, since the middle of the 19th century. And you could say, well, Torbeke and Sophie are stronger than he is. So, but this, 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 the problem is William III is not allowed to uh, really wield power. He has no power any longer, but he wants to be. This military man, he wants to be like his father, who was a military hero, and he is not. <laughs> he is everything not.
0: <laughs> oh, poor guy! I, I feel <laughs> really bad for this poor king.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: It's rough. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, yes, yes, and then well, well why, why do why do we still have House of Orange? That's also because of William the Third.
0: yes, that's
1: also William the Third. That's. Well, this 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 marriage with his first wife, they get three sons, and they uh, William the uh, third survived all his three sons. So uh, the the heir also William. Uh, doesn't want to become king, so he flees to Paris and becomes a bohemian, uh, drinking and visiting uh, well, physical vis- visiting women of certain uh, reputation, uh, which is very nineteenth-century expression, of course. Uh, uh, the second uh, son dies very early, and the third son, well, he is he is always sick and too weak to to do anything. But then his wife dies, and he remarries. Uh, to Queen Emma. Queen Emma came from uh, Germany, like Sophie. Uh, Sophie came from Württemberg, and Emma came from, from, from Waldeck uh, uh, yeah, Piemont, a very small principality. Uh, and she was also family in, in, in a way, one way or the other, uh, many generations back. Uh, and she becomes the mother of uh, Queen uh, Wilhelmina. Uh, she gets the daughter. Oh, that's
0: Wilhelmina's mom.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She's Wilhelmina. So, so, and and uh, of course, uh, Dick van der Meulen also uh, looked for uh, that problem. Uh, but there is no reason to assume that William III is not the father of Wilhelmina, which also is a rumor that spreads gotcha. again and again. Well, yeah. 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 I think yeah. one of the the, the nice. Um, other lines in this in in this book, when I had really had to pack it full and full. It, it's it's Dutch history, it's European history, it's it's the development of the the Orange dynasty, it's uh, uh, the development of how they present themselves to the public, yeah, and and how their reputations mm-hmm. were, what was what was said about them. Uh, it's also the history of their several marriages. Um, uh, that is that uh at some point, point in the book I said well there are all uh there are all um uh, uh, I, will, I will look for it Burger Koningen there are um,
0: like Citizen Kings.
1: citizen kings. there are all Citizen Kings but there are all Citizen kings thank you uh, uh on their in their own way. You could say William I is a citizen king because he identifies him with the entrepreneurial new industrialists. He tried to, to, well, that's the way he is also remembered uh, uh, in Dutch history and that's the way uh, they teach him on him uh, in our schools. He is the king who um, uh, tried to modernize the Netherlands by industrializing it, by also uh, um, having this this large uh, connection of the northern Netherlands as a trade country, the southern Netherlands as an industrial country. And then, of course, Java, the Dutch East Indies, as win um, West uh, as, as a place where you could extract uh, a lot of money from so the the the, 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 the infamous uh, culture system uh, where the the Japanese had to, to to produce products for the world market that were traded by uh, one organization from the Netherlands the the, the German uh, of the Dutch trade uh, society um, uh uh, is also part of this uh, attempt of William the to, First to to modernize and to industrialize uh, the Netherlands. And in that way, um, uh, he is uh, um, uh, um, a burger koning, <laughs> a citizen king. Yeah, a citizen king. Now, the, the, the second king, you could call citizen king, and, and the, the words citizen king were meant for the French king. Uh, Louis-Philippe, so that's that's where they originate from, because he accepted, uh, or had to accept after the revolution of 1813 in France, uh, the modern constitution there. I could say this modern constitution, yes, uh, in the end, uh, uh, William II uh, accepted it, so he, in, in that classic sense, is our citizen king. Now, William III is King Gorilla, so uh, he was, you could say, unfit For his role as citizen king, but there the the citizen king um, um, changed from character. So you could say from the end of the 19th century, and I used here, uh, of course, I would almost say, uh, the famous uh, uh, essay by uh, Walter Badgett uh, on the English Constitution, and there this famous uh, essay says, well, Uh, Within this new parliamentary system we have here in England and we also got in the Netherlands, the role of the dynasty changes. And what should the dynasty do in this new political uh, uh, sphere, in this new political construction? It should be the family on the throne. It should be the first family of England or for the Netherlands, the the House of Orange, uh, the, the royal family should be the first Dutch family should be an example for uh, the Dutch middle classes, and that's what they became, and that's what they still are. And they are, they are still um, uh, presented as a nice family with nice children, and a warm mother and a warm father, etc., etc. Uh, and it's of course it's all uh, it's all play. It's, um, 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 Of course, they can have a good life, but most of it is play, is the way we want to, to see it, is the way we look at it, but it's also expected from them. Now, William III and Sophie were completely unfit to do this, but especially Emma, although if you see pictures from them and you see this William III, already an old man, his almost 40 years younger second wife, Emma, Uh, And then you see uh, their daughter, Queen Wilhelmina, and uh, you could say, well, this is uh, a nice uh, uh, bourgeois middle-class family. But you get the impression you're looking at three generations, not at two
0: generations. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There (laughs) you I mean, Wilhelmina is incredibly successful, right? And much beloved. And her daughter even more so, perhaps. Um, But um i mean so that's uh, that's wonderful it's a, it's interesting i like this, this the citizen king it's and it's fascinating how the house of orange kind of rides this out and now and and makes its way to being this um you know and in a time when people are going to say the monarchy is irrelevant i've never heard a dutch person suggest we shouldn't have
1: no the they're still popular Canada. although uh, uh if it's about uh uh, their behavior, there's always discussion, and if there's discussion, it's always about money and, and, and how, how much it may cost. Um, but, and that's one of my conclusions, because I, I follow it not, uh, I do not stop at the end uh, uh, of, at, with the death of William III in 1890, I follow it up to the end of the First World War, because then again, it's war followed by revolution, where almost all monarchies of Europe disappear, Uh, but uh, uh, the Dutch monarchy uh, uh, survives uh, the First World War and the Netherlands were neutral in the First World War, neutral country. Um, uh, And uh, there I I say, well, um, as long as the Dutch public wants to have a monarchy, wants to have a royal house, they are safe. But as soon as the majority of... The Dutch uh, public says, well, we should quit with the Royal House and we vote for parties that say, well, uh, come on, become modern and we should have a republic. Uh, And then again and again, because we will need the constitutional change before it. really, really constitutional change. Then it will be the end. So they they are born celebrities. They are born celebrities. Um, and not only the things they do good, but also the things they go wrong, increases the fascination of them. Just like the celebrities in pop music or sport or whatever, uh, um, or, or, or movies, uh, celebrities. Um, uh, well, they hardly can do wrong. So the king can. Uh, the king can do no wrong. The, the famous sentence, of course, is a sentence coming from politics, but it has. Now it's, you could say, its cultural counterpart because there's this fascination uh, around there as celebrities. Uh, But it has a price, of course.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely.
1: Especially for them.
0: Yeah, and I I mean... Yeah, well, I mean we're talking about let's not talk about Amalia's birthday party or something like that. Yeah. But yeah. It is I mean the fact that I have opinions on this poor girl's birthday party is is an yeah. issue. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yes,
1: And of course, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I should <laughs> I mean, yeah.
0: She's just eighteen. Who care like why does she you know, she who's no one's life should have to be that examined. But yeah. No. Also, she never has to do anything, so you know. No,
1: uh, no, no I think there are two possibilities. Eh? you have uh, to say, "Well, it's all—it uh, is—it's all in the hand of God. It's—it's forzienigheid. It's providence. That's—that's—that's why I'm born in this in this family. Or you have to be completely ironic. I think, but I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but you could you could ask how much providence and how much irony you can bear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh God, that's a question for life, sir. All right, well,
1: that's an existential question.
0: <laughs> this is an existential question that probably applies to all of us a little. Um, So wow, thank you so much. This is this great history lesson. Uh, You know, I'm so grateful to have a tutor. I need this for my Enburcharing. So you've just thank you so much. Uh, But also thanks to our listeners. This is fascinating, and I know now people are going to want to go read this book and read more about and the three that precede it. Um, And so, what are you working on right now? This, I mean, this is four years old,
1: right? Twenty yes, I, the, the Dutch edition uh, I finished in 2018. Old. And mm-hmm. then, well, this translation oh, uh, is very well translated by Andy Brown. It was a very nice cooperation, by the way. Uh, 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 even if it was COVID, you just met once and then it was all online. <laughs> well, uh, well, now I'm working and I, ha- I tried to finish it at the end of this year. Uh, I still have to write one uh, chapter. Uh, it's again a family history, <laughs> so this is also family history, but it's again a family history. Again, it's commissioned research, so I didn't uh, invent it myself. Um, and it's a book about the Dutch family uh, Kessler. Uh, and this Dutch family Kessler, the first uh, Kessler I write about, uh, is seen as the founder of the Dutch Royal Oil, of the Dutch Royal Oil. So he's also seen as the founder of Royal Shell, uh, which, uh, to of Dutch Royal Shell, which today is only Shell. Huh? So in, in a few years ago, they, 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 they quitted the Netherlands and they went to England. Um, but his, uh, one of his sons also became uh, president director uh, of Dutch Royal Shell just after the Second World War. And another son um, uh, became one of the founders of Dutch Steel, uh, in Ayn in, in Aymuiden, near Amsterdam. Today's Tata uh, still But then Hooghovens, as it was called. Um, and it's what I try is not to write this book as, a, as a, a history of entrepreneurship. But I said, Well, I want to see all of the family. So you have this first uh, a couple, uh, and then they have six children, and they all marry. So I have in the second generation 12 persons, and that's very interesting because one of the daughters marries with one of the Fokker family of the, the, the airplane, but he is a, 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 a cousin uh, who is a physician and does all of all kind of work together also with Einstein. Uh, another daughter marries with uh, another physician, Philip Koenstam, who we know as a pedagogue. Here in Utrecht, we have a Koenstam school. Uh, And he's a very famous pedagogue. Uh, in the 1930s and, and after the Second World War, second World War, um, and they go into uh, into law, they go into sport. Eh? They, they do early football and they also do uh, tennis on the uh, Olympic tennis. Even some of them, one of the daughters sings, uh, so she she's, she has a beautiful voice. Uh, one of the daughter-in-laws plays piano, just as I do. I'm sitting here behind my. Uh, uh, grand Piano of my... <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, so I tried to make this um, book on bourgeois culture. And entrepreneurship is just one one part of it. So it's a book on bourgeois culture, uh, middle class culture, from, say, the middle of the uh, uh, 19th century up till... I, I would love to go to the 1970s because... One of the third generation, that's Max Konstam, which was a diplomat in the Netherlands, um, uh, was a member of the Club of Rome. And then you have within this oil family, if if I may call them that way, you have a kind of mirror with this Club of Rome for, well, well, the way we think today of oil and of the climate problems. It's a very large story. You can imagine uh, with the steel, it's it's very European, but especially oil. Well, oil is world history, and it's very much Dutch colonial history. Imagine that the first oil well, and that's uh, the, the first Kessler who gets this oil well commercially uh, working, uh, and at base that there is not money uh, uh, earned with it, um, is f- is found and works in 1892, just below Aceh, on the northern part of the island of Sumatra in the Dutch East Indonesia today, and this Dutch Aceh war is still raging there. So sometimes this early uh, uh, um, uh, the compound of, of Dutch royal, as they are already called then, they are, they are called Dutch royal right from the beginning, um, uh, they have these Aceh warriors on their uh, compound, so uh, he's even shooting so so uh, himself. Uh, so yeah, that's it's,
0: it's, uh, right. That's a that is a big story. It's a
1: big, big story.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, no. a big
1: story. <laughs>
0: yeah, and then, like and the intermarriages and like the bourgeois culture of singing and playing piano, like that's that's going to be a cool. I'm interested. I'm interested in this book. I'll talk. We'll talk again when it comes out. I say this at the end of every interview, but I have such a good time. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and again, thank you so much. Thanks so much for talking to me. And thank you so much for writing this lovely book. Um, once again, listeners, it is The House of Orange in War and Revolution, 1772 to 1890 Oh, this year in English. If you happen to read Dutch, it's, uh, it's been available to you for a while. Uh, so go check it out. Okay. And thank you very much, Jeroen. It's been lovely.
1: Yeah, Thank you very much, <laughs> Yes.
0: Okay.